Before we get into today's episode, I want to tell you about Aventure, a new platform that's making venture capital available to the masses. It doesn't matter if you are an accredited or non-accredited investor. Aventure provides an opportunity to diversify your investment portfolio by providing access to investing in venture capital funds. The Aventure app provides everything you need to make startup investments, including extensive research material, seamless transaction processes, and allocation measures. For fund managers, Aventure seeks to help you streamline your operations and launch your fund. Now, typically, venture capital and startup investments are liquid, which is a major pain point in our industry. Aventure is fixing this by offering periodic withdrawals for its investors. I and many others in the industry are so excited about this launch. Their first fund launch is coming early next year. So if you want to be the first in the know, join their waitlist at aventure.vc. That's A-V-E-N-T-U-R-E dot V-C. Also check the link in the show notes. Aventure is a California-based fintech company and operates independently from investment advisors on its platform who may be registered as investment advisors in the U.S. or qualify for exempt reporting status. Hello, and welcome to the Consumer VC Podcast, where we discuss the intersection of venture capital and consumer innovation. I'm your host, Mike Gelb, and if you're enjoying the show, you can subscribe to my newsletter where you'll receive every new episode a week early. Head to theconsumervc.com and click subscribe. All content episodes are for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not investment advice. Our guest today is Matt Higgins, the founder and general partner of RSE Ventures. RSE is a private investment firm that focuses on sports entertainment, media marketing, food and lifestyle, and technology. Most recently, he wrote the book Burn the Boats, which is a counterintuitive formula for a life of perpetual growth. You can find a link in the show notes to get your copy. Some of their investments include VaynerMedia, Milk Bar, Magic Spoon, and Bonza. We discuss why he pivoted from a career in the public sector to the private sector in his 20s, working for the New York Jets and Dolphins, how he met Gary Vee, which is a cool story, and how he thinks about investable opportunities overall. Oh, and also Pickleball. Without further ado, here's Matt. Matt, thank you so much for joining me here today. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Excited to be on. Ah, this is great. This is great. So I want to start a little bit first with like the earlier part of your career. I know you were like the youngest Merrill um, press secretary at New York when you were 26. Why did you transition your career from the public sector to the private sector? Probably, if I'm honest, fatigue. I had started working for the government at a pretty young age. My first job working for uh, Mayor Giuliani in the press office, I probably was like 20 years old. And before that, I had worked for a community board. And back in the day, you could imagine what it was like working for the mayor as a deputy press secretary, ultimately as a press secretary. I I witnessed horrendous things. We had two plane crashes when I was there. Um, Just it was nonstop, gut-wrenching, hard work. And by the time I was 26, I became press secretary. I had helped oversee the media for the worst terrorist attack in U.S. history. I was literally working seven days a week, actually working seven days a week for the mayor. The mayor never took any time off. And then I was overseeing the redevelopment of the World Trade Center site. I was actually the first employee on the ground of a new agency that was charged with designing a memorial, figuring out the right mix of commercial space and 
and all the different complicated issues. It was the most closely watched design competition in the history of the world. So by the time I was 28, I was probably a little burned out and thought, I want to take these skills about building and navigating and managing constituencies and take them to the private sector. So if I'm honest, I don't think I had a clear vision. I just knew I had had enough. I mean, that's fascinating. And it also makes a lot of sense. I mean, that's a lot to kind of handle, you know, experience of that. Well, I also talk to people a lot about this. I'm very passionate about this idea of leverageable assets. And sometimes we find ourselves pigeonholed in a career because we think that we are a domain expert and we narrowly define what you're a domain expert in, right? So I could have said, well, I'm a domain expert now in redevelopment in a government context. But I took a step back and said, well, that's not really what I'm doing. I'm building in chaotic environments and having to overcome, you know, skepticism, manage press. Like that is my broadly defined domain expertise. How do I take that now and leverage it to an, a different environment that would make me a little happier and make more money? And so I leveraged that domain expertise of managing through chaos in a high pub, pub profile environment to go to the New York Jets, who needed someone to help them build a new stadium. Building a new stadium in a metropolis is about one of the hardest things you could ever do. And so by zooming out and broadly defining who I was, I was able to leverage that asset. And when I talk to people and give them advice on mentorship, I find that they're narrowly defining who they are and what they do, and they get stuck in the same career. More so, so you should more be thinking about it just broadly. What are, what's like the actual skills that you've led? And how, as you say, which I really, which, which I love that, how you can actually leverage those skill sets for something completely different. How did you actually get hooked up with the Jets? Um, so coming out of this, the the uh, redevelopment of the World Trade Center site, the New York Jets were once and for all trying to find their own home. They had been nomads uh, and been sort of like the younger sibling of the Giants uh, in their stadium at the Meadowlands. It was lots of indignities the Jets had to endure by sharing that stadium in a different state, you know, with a different franchise. They were always subordinate. And so they had once and for all decided it's time to build their own stadium. But, you know, easier said than done. And the Jets at the time were part of New York City's bid to host the Olympics. So the, they had a vision for a new stadium on the west side of Manhattan. That would be the linchpin of an Olympic bid. So it made a lot of sense. It was clever because you were attaching yourself to a project that would be presumably more desirable than an NFL stadium in a, in a city, although the stadium made 100% sense. I feel that way to this day. And they needed somebody who could navigate this. And because I had these newly acquired skills overseeing the redevelopment post 9-11, I was the perfect person. So back to back to connecting the dots and leverageable assets. My lever leverageable asset was very valuable to the Jets. Got it. But the actual construction, right? It never actually happened, right? In terms of like the West. Minor, de minor detail. Minor details. Minor details. Minor details. But interestingly, it, it didn't happen, but we optimized the situation. What ended up happening is two things. One, the Jets needed a practice facility of all their own. Uh, and so I ran a process uh, with all these different municipalities in New, in New Jersey to find the right setup. We found a beautiful... Oh, were they also at that time sharing like their practice facility with the Giants as well? No, it was the, the, share, the practice facility was in Long Island at Hofstra University and the stadium was very, very, very far away. And there's a lot of value, I won't get into it, about proximity between practice facility and stadium. So it made sense to move. But two things we leveraged. One, the impulse to have their own home we were able to leverage that to do a much better deal with the New York Giants as 50-50 partners in a new stadium, which did get built. It's at the Meadowlands now. And leverage the impulse to basically move, relocate to do a great deal 
and I don't mean great economic deal, I mean just a beautiful home for the Jets in Florham Park, New Jersey. So it wasn't all lost. That project on the West Side obviously didn't materialize or else you and I would be going to games at, at the stadium. But <laughs> in the end, it worked out for the team. So I know that you worked for the Jets and also then uh, Miami Dolphins. Where did RSC Ventures kind of come into this when you realized that you kind of wanted to transition out from the public sector to the private sector? Was venture capital always on the back of your mind that you wanted to be kind of around startups and innovation? Or like what was kind of your, where was your head at? Yeah, I think back to really auditing yourself, what makes you tick? What do, what do you care? And again, again, broadly defining domain expertise. Uh, reflecting upon who I am and the situations I kept gravitating towards, number one, a bias towards chaos, apparently, because press secretary of the mayor, I'm surrounded by tragedy and catastrophe and these high pressure situations. Uh, So bias towards chaos. And what is chaos really? Uncomfortable being in in environments where there are known unknowns, you know, and where things are unpredictable and uncertain. And fundamentally, I'm a builder. So what I, I architected my entire life, frankly, my path out of poverty. I dropped out of high school at 16 and chose a very unconventional path. I realized I'm a builder at heart and overseeing a mature brand does not get me excited. So I ran the New York Jets business, ultimately uh, did eight years there and everything was status quo at that point. We had a new stadium, we had a practice facility, everything was peachy. I had everybody's dream job, but my own. And I had to finally be honest with myself saying, this is a very heady job. I have an office on the 50 yard line. You know, everyone wants, every kid wants my job, but I realized that's not really what I want to do because the building phase is over. And so the, the role with my partner, Steve Ross was a perfect marrying of leverageable assets. My leverageable asset is that I know how to oversee a sports team. Ross was a new owner at the time, relatively, and he needed somebody to help oversee the business of the team. Uh, he also is a builder, largest one of the largest developers in the United States, and he had a vision for turning this into a, basically an omni-channel sports complex, which I was well-suited to do, and he could help satisfy this desire I had to build and build in a commercial context. The Jets gave me the experience in private sector now overseeing P&L. And I just had all these ideas of businesses I wanted to create, people I wanted to back, assets I wanted to leverage. And working in a mature NFL environment just didn't give me the freedom to do it. RSC was born to give me the freedom to do what I was meant to do. What do you mean by omnichannel sports complex? Just, just kind of curious. Well, what I mean is, you know, it's interesting. You spend all this money on a stadium. Nowadays, it could be like $4 billion. Back then, I think the Meadowlands was $1.6 billion, the Jets-Giants stadium. So you have this, this, this property that you're using for NFL games back then, you know, 10 times a year. And then what's it doing the rest of the time? So it's just a tremendously wasteful in a lot of respects, a huge investment for not enough yield. And Ross is always about optimizing everything. So was, so that's number one. The first thing I did at RSC was saying, okay, what's the leverageable asset of the Dolphins, right? What, well, we have this incredible stadium. We're in Miami, right? Hispanic capital of the United States. Like a lot of people love soccer. So we held a match one night with Barcelona. I think it was Barcelona Chivas. It was an exhibition match on like a Wednesday night. And we had more people attend that match than Dolphins games at the time. That's changed. But And Ross and I were like, whoa. We should really lean into this. And so what's great about working with him, I think relatively small compared to him. Everything is always 10x my first impulse. But the view is let's put together a business where we attract the best international soccer teams in the world and we bring them to the United States starting in Miami. And thus was born the International Champions Cup. So I'm I'm zeroing in on this idea of leverageable assets because it's kind of how I approach every business, every situation and how I approach myself. I appreciate that. And also like that story, I was, I was kind of interested in how the International Champions Cup got 
um, formulated and how that got put together. So um, I, I appreciate you sharing. I know that you said that one of your skill sets really th- and throughout your life, you've your your life, you face this is, you know, kind of biased towards chaos or surviving chaos. You know, at the early stages for founders, it is very chaotic, right? And what are your when you're kind of evaluating founders and seeing and picking the right people that you want to partner with at RSE or just even to work with, what are maybe some like qualities or skills that, that kind of stick out to you and in terms of how you actually evaluate founders? Great question. And I'm glad we're starting with the person rather than the project, right? Like it's such a cliche, but there's a reason cliches exist. They're true generally is that it is all about the jockey. So I do spend an inordinate amount of time assessing the human, you know, and what makes somebody tick. And I would say to answer your question, the number one thing I'm trying to ferret out, aside from the table stakes, intellect, great idea, whatever, right? The number one thing I'm trying to assess is how high the person indexes on self-awareness. The universe is fundamentally benevolent in my life experience. It always gives you an opportunity to course correct before you're doomed. There are these little moments where it's like, I'm going to give you another shot. <laughs> you know, if you pay attention, if you make these minor course corrections right now, I'll give you a chance to survive. And I have found throughout my life when I'm auditing, when things really went wrong, the universe gave me the signals to do something about it. And what enables people to act on those minor interventions and make the course corrections before it's too late is a blend of confidence and humility. Number one, the confidence to audit your own decision-making, your decisions to see, is this really working out? And the humility to acknowledge uh, that it isn't working out and make those course corrections, right? The deck of any business barely resembles what it ends up being five years later. That's a fact, right? So when you have that unique blend of confidence and humility, you'll make the course corrections and you'll pivot and iterate before it's too late. So I can predict generally the magnitude of someone's success by the amount of time it takes them to act on a decision that is now objectively inevitable. So it's a lot to unpack in that sentence, right? But if I have a fact pattern where it's like your product sucks, people are buying it, the market is telling you, your employees are toxic, like you're going to fail. How much more evidence do you need in order to act on that fact pattern to course correct? And there are some people out there who need to see the iceberg right on, on the bow, you know what I mean, in order to try to avoid it. And by that point, as we learned from the Titanic, it's too late, right? So I look for those people. And the reason why self-awareness is so important, they're going to they're gonna look, they're going to be intellectually curious and open-minded when those initial data points come to you. That junior employee who's a 25-year-old analyst and is not empowered yet to tell you the truth, find his way to your inbox and says, hey, boss, you're this actually sucks. Are you interested in that email? Or do you say they they went around the hierarchy of authority? You know what I'm giving you like a random fact pattern, but that's what I'm looking for. So I'm looking for how high do they index on self-awareness? It's tough, right? Because when you start a company and you know things maybe don't work right out the gate, maybe one of the things that you know you're kind of back in your mind is okay, let's pivot. Let's maybe, you know, our product maybe isn't quite there yet. Maybe it sucks, but maybe we don't maybe we don't have enough data to really know if it sucks or 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 we don't, you know, there there really hasn't been enough time. How do you kind of analyze if kind of the, the only way is through kind of mentality where like you just got to keep pushing and, and doing it and eventually, you know, you'll get there? Or, or actually saying, all right, you know what, this is actually, this is actually too much time has gone by. Like, this is not the right direction. We have to uh, course correctly. How do you kind of evaluate that when you, when you talk to founders? Well, first of all, Mike, that is like a great question. I mean, we could do a whole podcast devoted to this because this is the thing, right? I mean, um, Jeff Bezos has a line that I love that I'm 
going to mess it up, but you have to be rigid in your conviction and flexible in your execution. So number one, I want founders who are rigid in their conviction of the vision, right? Because there are, I always say this, it's hard enough to be right. It's almost impossible to know when you're going to be right. So what I'm often assessing is, one, I want the person to have the confidence in their conviction to stick with it in dark times. I don't want people who careen from one idea to the next. That's a very bad data point. So then the, then the question I'm asking goes back to Jeff Bezos. Is this an instance where we just need to be a little bit more flexible in our execution and implementation and stick with the vision? Or is the vision fundamentally flawed? So I think any founder or anyone who's starting something new you're constantly pressure testing the wisdom of the vision. So let's make that less you know, abstract, right? If you are long crypto, which I am, and you're long the metaverse, which I am, that has not been proven out to a high degree yet with any great use cases, right? But if my vision is that I believe that DeFi is going to upend financial transactions throughout the world and allow peer-to-peer transactions and on and on and on, then I have to pressure test, are, is, does the vision have traction? Are there things happening in the marketplace that are reinforcing that my vision of adoption is true, even if my execution hasn't proven out yet, right? Or the specific area. So I know that's very convoluted, but that's what it boils down to. It's like constantly auditing and reassessing whether the vision itself is moving in the right direction, even if the company isn't. Okay, no, that's really helpful. Really helpful. Thank you for that. I also want to know, um, when was... When did you meet Gary Vee for the first time? What was your first impression and how did you um, ended up investing in, in their uh, media? That's a fun question. And, and Gary Vee to me is a testament to how you can get pretty wealthy and look very successful just by copying other people's ideas, which I have done from Gary basically since the first time we met. I have been the benefactor of all these incredible insights, many of which, by the way, to this day, I still dismiss. And I'm like, why did I underestimate it again? But I, um, I was running the New York Jets. Gary is a huge fan for those who don't know, which would be impossible for you not to know this if you know Gary, but he's a huge fan. So early on at the Jets, maybe it was 2009, I think, my team was excited about selling him a suite. This is what it boiled down to. My interaction with Gary was all an attempt to try to hustle him out of a few dollars to buy a suite that he probably didn't need uh, at the time. So I went to meet him at a bagel store in New Jersey. Ironically, I had that one where I'm not far from at this very moment. And uh, the mission was to you know try to sell him. And the, the meeting lasted maybe a half an hour. And I remember the first 10 minutes, I didn't know much about him. I didn't really watch his videos about Wine Library. And he's gesticulating and cursing every 10 seconds and just, just going on. I thought, this guy's kind of out of his mind, right? But then in the second 10 minutes, and I do think I do have the confidence and humility that I talk about, right? A lot of what he said, if you eliminated the bravado, made a ton of sense. So for example, he was talking about how with the advent of smartphones, everyone is going to be a content creator and a producer and HBO all at the same time. They're going to have the means of distributing their content and they're going to have the ability to create their own content. And by virtue of platforms like Twitter and Facebook, which were still you know, emerging at that time, those are going to be the first movers in enabling people to disseminate their own content and become their own network, right? That's like a lot of prediction that when he connected the dots, it all made a ton of sense. And so that was our first meeting. And I realized a few things. One, Gary is going to be, it's going to be a big figure in the world. And it's just earlier than others. And he pitched me on this idea at the meeting of me and my brother, AJ, who at the time was in college, we're going to go ahead and start a firm all to help big companies 
do their social because they're never going to be able to keep up with these trends. They're going to move too fast and they have too much bureaucracy. So they're going to need to outsource their judgment in this arena to a firm. And I'm going to be the first social media digital firm in the world to do this. And I was like, this sounds actually pretty smart. So I, I cut a deal with him to give him four Jets tickets, became the first client of VaynerMedia. And then, yeah, and then I was like, all right, that proved to be correct. How do I, how do I weaponize Gary in other contexts, investing? How do I become his partner? We had become like brothers by that point. So when I joined up with Steve Ross, we went back and we acquired uh, 40% of the firm. So we are Gary's only partner. The firm has become the largest independently owned firm in the world. <laughs> he went from doing Twitter ads for, you know, or Twitter, you know, or social media community management for small companies to now doing in one year, I think four Super Bowl ads. So it's been an incredible, incredible journey. But back to my point, we talked when we opened this conversation, it is really all about the ja- the jockey. And, and, and Gary had something incredibly special that I knew. I didn't have to specifically understand how he would execute the vision, but I knew the vision was correct. The world needed a firm that could help them navigate this incredibly shifting landscape. And what was so interesting too is, you know, Gary started out obviously, you know, in wine, right? I mean, very obviously different. I mean, he was doing stuff on social at the yeah. time, right? Doing a lot of videos, but this was still, you know, quite different to what he was previously doing in terms of where he came from. That's a great question. I easily could have said, okay, well, your, your domain expertise is wine. Why am I going to believe that right. a wine guy can run an advertising agency, right? It's important to fundamentally distill what is it. He wasn't a wine guy. He was a guy that was creating incredible content yeah. to get people to care about an industry that they didn't care about before, right? Totally, totally, absolutely, absolutely. And it's amazing how that's kind of transformed, you know, horizontally to obviously just across content and obviously advising companies. Yeah. How did Resi actually form then with with Gary and you actually work with Gary for to create Resi? Yeah, the Resi Resi was I talk about this in um I have a book coming out in February called Burn the Boats and I talk about this idea uh, greater detail of proprietary insights. This notion that um, when you sit in the stream of information, no matter where you are, I don't care what job you have. You could be doing like I did maintenance man at the party room at McDonald's, you know, or, or you're running a company. Wherever you are, you have proprietary insights that you can only glean by sitting in the stream of data in that particular context. So Ben's Leventhal's proprietary insight from being in the food space was that there is no good back of the house inventory management system for restaurants. Right? There's no system that enables you to make a three top and a four top and manage yield like every other business does. Right, And there's no system that enables restaurants to tap into this tremendous demand at certain points and maybe flex up and down what they charge. That was the insight. Right, In the end, they moved away from that part of the model. But the insight was like, God, everybody in the world wants to go to this hot new restaurant at 7 p.m. And yet the rest of the reservation at 7 costs the same as a, you know, as a lunch on a Saturday or something. So it was born of Ben's proprietary insights about how to improve the industry. And then three, that open, that, uh, open table was seen as a tax on the industry. Open table was basically buying you know, search, right? So that if you were a restaurant, you basically had to buy back for a dollar a reservation your own, you know, uh, your own patrons, right? Because all that search was being taken up by Open Table, Chinese food restaurant, this area, right? All those, so you basically, they became a clearinghouse and a lot of people resented it as a tax. The best restaurants in the world in the, and, and starting in the United States controlled their own demand. Mm-hmm. For them, it wasn't about randomly getting somebody who might be interested in Italian food on a Saturday night. It was way too much demand. It was way too much. Well, I was going to say Carbone, 
can fill it up all day long. They didn't need to be on. But what they did need, the Carbones of the world and 11 Madison back in the day, they needed um, yield management and a better management system for the inventory. And that's what that's what Ren, ben, uh, ben did. And what was great about Ben, back to my point about pivoting, you know, the model was originally about selling these reservations. And I realized it's a much bigger business to go ahead and create a back of the house inventory management system as a SaaS product. And that's what he built. And then several within a few years, by starting with the best restaurants in the country, we had created a platform that had the best restaurants. I have marquee brand. And that's what Amex was, uh, was interested in. They got it. No, that's that's really interesting. Also, I, I appreciate you kind of like that go to market strategy too, with how you went for the best restaurants and really trying to solve their problem of, you know, inventory management instead of but, but that's why I'm telling you a little bit of the story too about founders. Like if we hadn't pivoted and said simply we're gonna stick with a model where the underlying model is to extract more dollars from people who pay more for reservations at different time slots, that's a very tiny business that would have failed. It would have actually gone under instead of pivoting to, no, the value here is creating an inventory yield management system for restaurants that doesn't exist. And that'll be our Trojan horse. What kind of got you as well into investing in restaurants? Because I know that it seemed like RSE kind of brought in their mandate a little bit, their investment mandate when you started investing in Momofuku and Magnolia Bakery. And um, so what brought in like your mandate per se to invest in, in restaurants? And also, how did you meet David Chang? <laughs> There's a lot to unpack in that question. I, I think big picture, what is a restaurant, especially for this generation? It's an experience, not that different than a sporting outing or any other type of entertainment experience. We love to eat. We love to eat out. Our chefs are celebrities, you know, people are foodies. I love food, you know, too much. And so that was one, but that's more the emotional reason. The business reason would be, Going back to connect the dots. Everything I've done in my career and my life is about connecting the dots. And you can only understand something I'm doing now by something I did yesterday or a leverageable asset that I possessed yesterday that I put to work in, in whatever I'm doing at the moment. In the case of restaurants, when you have these great concepts that people wish were not just in one city, but were in 10 cities, or you have an ambitious chef who wants to have instead of one unit, they want 50 units, right? The path to wealth, um, where they topple over is bad real estate decisions. Everybody it becomes too enamored with their own brand and they think, oh, I don't need to take a great spot on Main and Main. I'll get a spot on a side street, but because people love me so much, they'll find me. They make bad real estate decisions or they make bad personnel decisions and they topple over when they try to scale. My partner, Steve, is one of the largest real estate developers in the world. They have tremendous experience and obviously places where you could put restaurants. And so the idea was, let me marry this real estate expertise, this expertise on scaling with great founders who need a partner who could help unlock their vision, right? So, and that's what we did with Christina Tosi. And when I did the deal with David Chang in 2017, uh, Milk Bar wasn't Milk Bar. Milk Bar was a brand. Milk Bar was some locations, but Milk Bar wasn't a company. So I took that experience on creating a mature business we spun it out with Dave's help and Christina, and we created a proper company and we helped them scale. So my personal sweet spot about what I enjoy, forgetting about the different verticals I'm in, the underlying activity I love is to take somebody magical and special who needs something to help them unlock their full potential and trying to do it in an egoless way. That also respects that people who have an artistic bent tend to come with all sorts of idiosyncrasies, right? Like I always say this all the time, you take a founder as they come, so if you have a founder who uh, has an artistic bias, of course, they might not be great with conflict resolution, right? They might be avoiding tough conversations or they may not be the most disciplined when it comes to managing a PL. Like 
you take them as they come. And I love the act of figuring out how to mitigate people's weaknesses or deficiencies, prop them up and unlock their full potential. I know as well, you're also very passionate as well about or and, and critical um, of like the direct to consumer model um, that's been happening um, with brands. What are you seeing as like the current state of direct to, direct to consumer? There's there's like, you know, Twitter posts that kind of come out um, every now and again, that's like D2C is dead. Um, you can't build like a, a real business by, uh, by just selling online. What do you think on the brand side, like the CPG side, which I know that that you're heavily invested in. I know that you're you're investor in a Magic Spoon, for example. What are your thoughts around that? Yeah, I mean, I'm very passionate about the space as long as it's put forth with nuance, right? Fundamentally, I started this course at Harvard Business School with my co-professor, Len Schlesinger, uh, on the idea that reality, direct-to-consumer is really just a launch vertical. It's not a business unto itself or even a business model unto itself. It's a launch vertical, but it's not nothing either. It is revolutionary insofar that it enabled a few things to happen. One, if you look at like hymns, we weren't all talking honestly and openly about erectile dysfunction and how about and how erectile dysfunction is a harbinger in the mind that's telling you that some, a canary in the mind rather, or a harbinger of bad things to come. It's telling you that your cardiovascular system is underperforming, right? Or you have psychological issues that you, you, know, you want to contend with that are affecting your quality of life, right? Without direct-to-consumer, I'm not sure that uh, ED would have been able to be the kind of thing we talk about in a non-stigmatized way. So what, uh, what, what direct-to-consumer has done uh, you know, as a first principle, is to basically destigmatize conversations we weren't having before by being able to go direct to the consumer and have a broadened conversation around community. Whereas if you were relying on a supermarket or a CVS, how are you going to have that conversation around ED? So number one, you know, destigmatize. Two, maybe notify you or inform you that you are putting something bad in your body. And I'm here to tell you as a friend, right? So if you look at Lola as an example, right? They were they entered feminine care products and they were looking at the label and be like, I don't understand half these things. And why is there bleach in my tampon, right? Like I think enabling you to inform you that you're being taken advantage in some way and that there's a better way. So for me, DTC was a way to bypass the intermediary and create communities around conversations around stigmatized topics that wouldn't otherwise be happening. So that's amazing. Why it's important to recognize that it's a launch vertical is that there's a utility in middle in middle people. There's a utility in having a distributor to get yourself out in front of a ton of people. And what we've learned with direct-to-consumer, so many of these businesses were really pred- predicated on marketing arbitrage. You know, early Facebook days, wow, I, my CAC could be X and I could get a, you know, five times LTV. Like they, 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 were, they were built on these marketing hacks that um, were destined to fail over time because mature um, companies would pour in and bid up the cost of those impressions, right? And that is a cycle that I see play around all the time. So the purpose of my course is to say, DTC is great. And God bless you if you've stumbled upon the one model where you could stay pure play DTC in perpetuity. They're very rare. Um, But recognize that really what you're building is an omni-channel business where DTC enabled you to move in a way that you couldn't otherwise do because rather than having to convince Walmart to take your product, all you have to do is convince Bob down the road to buy your product, right? And so that's my whole course at HBS with, with uh, my co-professors is all about deconstructing the omni-channel journey and, un- and always taking stock. What does it mean to be a DTC business today? And how do, you, how do you ramp up to retail and other channels? So that makes a lot of sense. I think just to recap it, it seems like as an educational marketing channel, it's you know incredible to kind of get the word out and you know in, in case study about what hymns have done, for example, that you mentioned. But 
in terms of and, and and also just as a launch ch channel for your brand um and also just like an incredible way to actually get feedback really quickly from um from people that are actually trying your product and maybe maybe you do you would adjust your marketing or, or just your copy that you know once you're once you have a really compelling you know whole, wholesale business it's really hard to kind of walk that back and actually or impossible to really walk that back and actually change the packaging or or you know kind of adjust anything you want to um, so kind of getting that like really fast feedback loops is also really, really, really great. Well, that's the bottom line. What you just said now, because I do a lot of businesses in CPG and the Holy Grail when you have these great brands, Milk Bar and otherwise, is like, let me get on the sales, right? Let me scale. And and the multiple of a CPG could be five times. And when things are crazy, they could be 10 times right on top line. And that's very different for brick and mortar where they can hover at two to three times, right? So everyone wants to be on shelves. The challenge, like you just said, well put it's like once you're on those shelves, you're on those shelves. Very hard to change. By the way, you got to keep the velocity up. You become a slave to velocity because, you know, to get kicked off the shelves is a disaster. So I think DTC in a mature business and an omnichannel business is you have your retail distribution and your DTC wing enables you to experiment with packaging and be very nimble. I, Magic Spoon, one of my favorite companies in the, in the world. I've been an investor from the beginning. For those who don't know, Magic Spoon is keto cereal, but with delightful boxes that look like Lucky Charms. And it doesn't make uh, eating healthy look like a punishment, but they've done remarkably well, did create a huge business. I think they just raised on like a $300 million pre-money from launching three years ago. Uh, but what they do great is they use their DTC channel to enable them to do like a sway box promotion where they put the sway house kids on the cover, which they never would have done at retail. You know what I mean? If like, if you put a bunch of TikTok kids on your, uh, I guess they're not kids anymore, but if you put a bunch of TikTok people on your box, where, what stores are you putting that in? Right. But on when you're DTC, it enables you to experiment and keep the brand fresh in a way, if you were pure retail, you couldn't. No, totally. I mean, like one, another example that comes to mind that came on the podcast was Ourobora. We had the founder Paul on and what Ourobora has done. It's a, it's, a, it's a sparkling water brand. And and what they've done is yep. they're, you know, in retail. That's, I think, the, like the primary sales channel. If you want to, you know, group it all together as one uh, sales channel, their wholesale business. But what they do is that when they uh, test new flavors, it's always done D to C. And then if the flavors kind of take off, then they kind of actually can like use that data to actually sell, you know, the wholesalers on, Hey, we should be, you know, incorporating this flavor into, um, and put this flavor on shelf. And they actually have data to actually back it, which I think is also like a really great way to kind of leverage, you know, D to C to actually for, to, to create, you know, an even better, um, wholesale experience. Yeah. I think that is the sweet spot, what they're doing. And I, I'm surprised that what you and I are talking about right now isn't like fundamental base case. Like every brand that's at retail should have a DTC component where you do crazy things that keep you fresh and contemporary. As an investor, what's kind of the current state of the market are you are you kind of seeing um, in CPG? Um, and also, how are you advising brands right now to enter retail? We've kind of heard it on like two different spectrums on, on the show because Walmart and Target um, are becoming, you know, really aggressive to wanting um, kind of DTC brands um, on shelves that brands are kind of going earlier and earlier to be on shelves. And we've also heard some investors that say you should wait until you actually have a really healthy, you know, kind of DTC business until you go until you kind of go for, to the Walmarts and, and Targets. But on the other hand, some of them are actually saying, you know, you should, you should go earlier and, and actually kind of accept these offers. What are you kind of advising some of the brands you're working with? Well, I think because this is happening in real time, we're having this debate across the board. I think the biggest challenge we have is that with, you know, with DTC, right, you can decide how much 
CAC you want to invest, how much customer acquisition cost you want to invest, right? You could just simply have it out. If you have other channels that you're moving product with, especially retail, your retail is continuing to hum. Hopefully you're generating a 20% four wall margin out of your retail stores. So what I'm specifically talking about is a context where someone has an omni-channel business, they have brick and mortar stores, they have a DTC component, and they want to go to the shelves, right? So because again, the holy grail, what, what, what I'm finding businesses are struggling with, they cannot make the margins work. They cannot get to a healthy margin at retail. And, but because everyone wants to be at retail, they want to talk themselves into that we can make it work somehow. And reality is with inflation, there are some product, project, products that simply do not work right now. So the number one advice I've been giving to people is once you are on the shelves of retail, you will do all sorts of unnatural things to stay there. And if your margin profile is upside down from day one, and the only way it gets better is inflation comes down and your ingredients can be sourced better, or you need unnatural volume that requires a price point that your data is showing maybe the consumer will pay, two things you have to assume. Things are actually going to get more expensive and the consumer is going to have less money to spend on discretionary products. So I guess my, my point to you is what I'm finding is people really are, are reaching with assumptions that are dangerous, that are not sustainable unless inflation comes down. And I think inflation is not coming down. And I think we're entering a going to recession and there's going to be a lot more layoffs and the consumer will have less purchasing power. So number one piece of advice I have, if you can wait, you should wait to go to retail. No, oh, that's a really great point. That's a really great point. I think that also what what we're kind of finding when I'm talking to investors too is wait to go to retail if you have you know a very healthy you know online business, but um, also price yourself though as you were to be in retail. Yep, that is 100 percent correct. What I found, especially with when I've had on the show private equity investors, they might love the company; they're doing really well online. But like their actual model, like the, there isn't enough margin that actually makes sense to actually create like a compelling wholesale business, and 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 that's really, really hard to actually change your prices right off the gate. Right, I think you're saying exactly the same thing. It's very hard to have a different pricing strategy at retail and DTC doesn't make any sense. So you can have different SKUs that are only on Amazon and whatnot. But exactly right, that you've become wedded with DTC for some reason. You're in a sweet spot that the CAC and LTV works, and yet it doesn't work at that price point of retail. And I just think we're at a moment, and you know, look, we're people love to presume what happened yesterday is what's going to happen tomorrow, or a bad thing will never happen again. Right? We're in a we're in, the, we're in the 1970s, you know, that's, that's your corollary, right? And so your decision-making should be around 1978, not, 19, not 2022, at least for the time being. And you should look at inflation as, as, a, as a permanent state until proven otherwise and make your decisions accordingly. So back to your point, if your pricing only worked on DTC but doesn't work at retail, that situation is probably not going to get better for the time being. No, that's a great, yeah, no, that's a really great point in just an overall how to see the market. So in terms of how to make the decision to go to retail at all, it's to honestly say to yourself, am I going to hit the, the velocity expectations necessary to stay on those shelves? And that's where I find people will talk themselves. They don't do enough research. I often find a lot of companies that have a great brand. I'm more talking about the use case where someone has a great brand and wants to move into a CPG where they hand it off to like the smart young person who worked at McKinsey to do it as like a side project. And they really under respect how much CPG product packaging retail is a competency with a lot of, you know, tried and, tr and proven lessons. They treat it like it's like a side hustle and they make terrible, terrible decisions. So my number one advice to anybody out there who is thinking about going to retail, there are experts who have done this before. You should pay very close attention to what they're trying to tell you.
Yeah, no, that's, and also like I was talking to, um, we had like a panel last week in Austin and one of the investors said also make sure that you actually have someone on the team or it could be, you know, an investor that actually understands retail because it is so freaking tough. Like all the different, all the different parts of the margin too, just understand like everything. And if you don't have that experience, like definitely have someone um, on your team that has that experience because it is just so, so different. But I'm amazed how rare that attitude is in this area. I don't know why people think they could just launch a wall food, you know, big deal. I, or especially that I found this with people who are high profile and prominent. They're like, oh, I'll get any meeting I want. I'm like, it doesn't matter about the meeting. It's about what happens after the meeting. <laughs> right, right, right. I mean, that's the only beginning, right? Then you actually have to uh, fulfill those or- those orders and POs and everything. And, you know. By the way, especially now with supply chain being completely obliterated across planet Earth. I mean, forget about your great product. You know, good luck even getting it made totally. these days. Totally. I wanted to talk as well a little bit of Shark Tank. I, obviously, you've seen hundreds, thousands of pitches. Um, what makes you know a great pitch um, in your mind when an entrepreneur maybe approaches you, whether it's on Shark Tank or you know off of Shark Tank? Well, that's great. Well, what's fun about Shark Tank is everything about Shark Tank is real. It's real money. It's real competition. It's real that you have no data. It's a little bit longer than what you see on TV, right? So the pitch, what you're seeing on TV could be, I think it's about seven and a half minutes or something. And in reality, that could be uh, 40 minutes, right? But so, but I'm always impressed when I see it cut up that it pretty much mirrors my memory, you know, and they, they managed to distill it into its important pieces. Why do I say that? Because it, it's almost like a big sociological experiment in trying to glean as much information as possible and making a weedy financial decision. Uh, and as a result, everybody subconsciously is relying on signals and tells. So I like to think about what are the signals that Shark Tank amplifies or shines a light on because you have such limited data, right? And the number one signal I'm looking for is comfort with acknowledging that you don't know, right? And it shows up in two ways. It shows up, one, in acknowledging, I don't have that information and I'm going to go get it, right? Or it shows up in the opposite, which is just agreeing with the other person, you know what I mean? And saying, oh yeah, we'll do that. We'll change that. So you'll see a lot on Shark Tank. Somebody will be under pressure and they're so desperate to get a shark in that they will simply change the name of their company, you know, or they'll change their product. So I guess the number one thing I'm looking for in a pitch is uh, one, know what you, I think you should objectively know, right? You got to know you, I won't let you off the hook for not knowing your numbers and not knowing things, but you don't have to know everything, but you have to demonstrate to me that you're the kind of leader who is willing one to acknowledge it and then to uh, figure it out, right? And go find the information. So that's number one in terms of what kind of businesses I'd want to back on the show or in real life on the show, I was looking for scalable and available. If you think about, take a step back, Shark Tank reaches 3 million people, right? So the asset of Shark Tank is the audience who are paying attention and want to give this product a try. If it's a brick and mortar location that sells great bagels and it's operating in one city, it's kind of a waste of the opportunity, right? So in whatever I'm looking for on the show, I'm looking for scalable you know, and available. In the real world, uh, when I'm trying to back an investment, every time I write a check, the act of writing a check is actually the act of assuming a new job. I don't care how optimistic you are that you're not going to have to get involved. My human behavior dictates that this is a job because I'm going to be interacting with that founder. So I want to make sure that I've effectively weighed the opportunity cost. So when I, what I like when I have a pitch and a person is very specific about they want why they want me on board, 
They're very specific and intentional about what they want me to do. And they demonstrate a way in which my very involvement can unlock a trajectory change in a business without me going on a rescue mission. I don't want to be anybody's salvation or savior, but I do want to be value add in a very specific way. So I love when a pitch is like, here's why I want you. Here's how I plan to use you. And here's how I plan not to ruin your life by virtue of you writing this, writing this check. I'd imagine you're obviously very passionate about sports being that you worked in the NFL for a long time and also with soccer here, but how did the drone league come together? What's it like building an actual league from scratch? I mean, like kind of like walk us through what that's all about. Cause I never actually had um, anyone on the show that actually invested in like an actual league. Yeah. Well, number one, you wouldn't want to wish it on, on your enemy because it's so hard. <laughs> <laughs> that's why. Sorry, Nick. I know if you're out there, but you know what I'm talking about. Nick is the founder, by the way, he's brilliant. Um, I, I think uh, it is really hard to have the audacity to say this This is something that should be a sport. So I met the founder, uh, Nick, uh, when he had a PowerPoint. And what's fun about investing so early that you don't have to worry about looking right. You just have to be right, right? Because there's no, there's, no, there's no proving it out to anyone. You just have to go on instincts to a large degree. The reason why I thought um, drone racing could be a sport as presented by Nick was this was already happening, right? A sport should become a sport somewhat organically because it's an activity that people are already undertaking in an amateur yet organized way, right? So drone racing, when he brought it to me in 2015 or 14, there were these YouTube videos of people racing drones all over the world in parks. It was like Star Wars, Tronish, and it was already happening. And so his point was, hey, let's organize this. Then, the, then I have to go into, I get this pitch all the time where somebody will believe something should be a sport and it's obvious that it's taken over their brain. It's like they've been infected with this enthusiasm. But I have to be honest, like this is one of the hardest things you'd ever do. I don't know if you have what it takes. So what does it take? It takes somebody who ultimately is going to figure out how to monetize those impressions, right? A commercial sport is, is documenting via TV or otherwise video format and bringing people potentially to a live space and monetizing those impressions with sponsors. And getting sponsors to believe in what you see and wine to associate with you long before that check is ever justified by those impressions. So what does that mean? An Amex or a, you know Facebook or somebody is going to write you a $2 million check just to be with you, even though there's no way on a CPM basis that $2 million is justified, right? So when I looked at Nick as the founder, Harvard MBA, amateur uh, producer of, of short films, right? CMO of Tough Mudder, CRO. So he demonstrated he knew how to monetize the sport, knew how to present the sport, he had all the, the pieces. I'm just giving you the anatomy of an early stage decision, right? Like, like, like why on earth would I do that? Um, and then we've been on the journey for seven years. And what makes going back to people who have the confidence and humility to iterate, Nick, the founder, is brilliant and cerebral and probably a little more of an introvert. And he realized at a certain point, I'm not going to get there on my own. I need somebody who's from sports, who, know, who is extroverted, knows how to sell, can get these deal done. And he brings in Rachel, who's the president. And Rachel has taken the business to a whole nother level. And the two of them are like Felix and Oscar. You know, they're the perfect combination. So back to the issues we talked about in the beginning about founders and humility. Nick had the confidence and the humility to acknowledge, I can't take my dream all the way without a partner. And he brought in Rachel. So long answer to your question. I'm in drone racing. It's fun to watch the agonizing pain. They've been at it for a long time. They've hit their tipping point. Their sponsorship deals are really significant now. And now they have uh, a TV product that where uh, gambling has been approved and licensed in a few states. And they've created an omni-channel property, basically. 
That's awesome. I'm like, I'm so fascinated and I, and I appreciate you walking through about, you know, like, I, I know it's just like two minutes here, but like this kind of the struggles of like starting up like a, a, a new league and kind of identifying what could become, you know, these kind of niche sports that actually maybe could become quite, uh, quite large in the future. Like it's something that I'm very, very fascinated. Like one of my fascinations is with um, um, a gentleman named uh, Barry Hearn, who started like, like the professional darts uh, corporation and like billiards and kind of was involved in a lot of kind of niche sports that actually became, you know, quite large and quite large uh, leagues and also, you know, media companies, which I think is just fascinating. It's so, so, so hard. And I think where they fall down is people take their eye off the ball. And the ball is you need to present this content in a dynamic way to an off, to an audience of non-avids. What happens is somebody's so damn passionate about darts or drones, whatever, that they think that the people they're talking to are avids who are going to watch just because you're showing drones races. Like, no, they need to talk to my son or somebody sitting on the couch and, you know, channel surfing who's like, oh, that's like weirdly cool and arresting. Yeah. You know, like, and they, they said speak to the niche audience as opposed to a broad one, right? Pickleball is a fascinating phenomenon. Are you watching pickleball play out? No, absolutely. Pickleball is great. I'm actually, um, I'm going to be having on two women who just bought a pickleball team. So really excited about that. And also like the whole major league pickleball. I mean, it's, it's really just incredible. Well, Matt, thank you so much for your time. This has been so much fun chatting with you. No, thank you. Your questions are really smart and insightful and, and just good good stuff for founders and anybody figuring out this journey, this very lonely, painful, arduous journey. So, so I, I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. And there you have it. It was such a pleasure chatting with Matt. Definitely recommend his book, Burn the Boats. You can find the link in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter at Mike Gelb and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone.